Good morning, church. Oh, what a great day it is. July 4th, 2021. Uh, so good to see uh, all of you. I see some church family, old church family, not old in age, just old in friendship and relational capacity. See you back in the house. So, so excited to see you um, <clears throat> on July 4th, especially. What a great day to return. You know, I am very grateful for the freedom we experience in the good old U.S. of A., uh, but there is an even greater freedom available to you today. <clears throat> for those who are in Christ, for those who walk by the Spirit, there is a freedom from the fourth enemy on our list today. Now, we're in a series called Allies and Enemies, and over the past three weeks, we've talked about um, various allies and enemies so that we can draw some lines in the sand and know who or what is for us, who or what is against us. So far, we've talked about three allies, and that is the Holy Spirit. Anyone remember the others? Holy Spirit, words, very good. Um, what else? Last week, Scripture, right? That is an ally. Then there are three enemies, three enemies that we're facing every day. We said it was Satan, words, words made the list twice, must be really important, right? Uh, and then words, what else? Deception or fake news, right? False Christianity, false prophets, we talked about that last week. Our fourth enemy that we uh, can have complete freedom from Notice I say freedom from, not control over. The fourth enemy that we can have freedom from is enemy number four, flesh. Look at your neighbor and say flesh. 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 What, what is flesh? Flesh. The carnal man. Uh, sometimes we call it the seat of sin or rebellion from God. Our, our broken humanity, that is what flesh is. When we come to Christ, our biggest enemy, one of our biggest enemies, is the desires of our flesh. And our only way to defeat these desires is through Christ. Today, I want to talk to you about flesh. Flesh. We, we all have flesh. So let's just be honest today. Can we just be honest? Let's just be honest. Let, let's let the word of God just wash over us today and purify us and cleanse us and set us free. There's no better day to walk in freedom than today, July 4th, 2021. Amen. Our text today comes from Romans chapter 7. And this chapter is a greatly misunderstood, but nevertheless, very important one. Uh, many students of scripture cannot understand why uh, the Apostle Paul deals with victory in chapter 6 and then in 7 discusses defeat. Uh, they feel that he should have immediately gone from chapter 6 into chapter 8, which talks about the blessing of being an overcomer, uh, the blessings in chapter 8. But listen, God didn't make any mistakes when he inspired the writers to write scripture, right? The Apostle Paul understood, at least on the spiritual level, uh, that Christians go through this cycle where we come to Christ and we have victory. But before we maybe see the, all the blessings unfold, there's another chapter of our life. There's another season that we go through. There's another 
mountain to climb. Are you with me? There's something between the victory and the blessing. And chapter 7 deals with a very real issue in Christian living. And it's the believer's relationship to God's law. The law of God, you know. Uh, I would say Ten Commandments, but it's actually bigger than that. The Ten Commandments are moral law that still holds today. There was ceremonial law in the Old Testament. And the Apostle Paul is talking to us in Romans chapter 7 about our relationship with God's law. So many of us, like the Apostle Paul, understand that there's this tension between knowing what you should do and what you're actually doing. Hopefully, I'm not the only one that experiences this tension, Chris. Come on. Say, I do too. Somebody just give me some feedback here. This, this tension of knowing what the right thing to say is, and then something else comes out. And you're thinking, did I just say that? Did I just say that out loud, right? This is the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7. Let's read our text together. Verse 15 through 25. I'm in the New King James Version. It says, For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, or what I want to do, what I know, know that I should be doing, that I do not practice. But what I hate... I do. If then I do what I will not to do, what I, what I promise myself I'm not going to do, if I, if I do that, I agree with the law that it is good. Meaning when I partner with that thing that I know I shouldn't be doing, it's very evident that the law is righteous, that the law is pure, that the law is something I should be running after. Right, right? That's what he's saying. Here, But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. In other words, the apostle is saying, I, I want to do what's right. I want to make the right decisions. I want to say the right thing. But how to do that? I can't seem to figure that out. Verse 20. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. In other words, even though I want to do good, I'm somehow beyond my ability to change what Paul is saying. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, verse 23. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members or in my flesh. In, in the physical realm here and now, there is something that is capturing me. Oh, wretched man that I am. Remember, this is the Apostle Paul who wrote most of the New Testament, right? And he's calling himself wretched. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? 
I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. So in this block of text in chapter 7, Paul is making it abundantly clear that even as a follower of Jesus Christ, there is a wrestle. There's a struggle. I know some, some cool cat has told you that once you come to Jesus, you're dead to sin and there's never a struggle and it's just awesome and life is grand and life is great. That's not reality. The same people who will tell you that find themselves in a muck and mire of pride two years later, of betrayal three years later, of addiction five years. Are you with me? The same people who will tell you that you shouldn't wrestle with sin will come to you and admit at some point that they've wrestled with sin. So we have to, be, we have to really divide the word of God to understand what, what is being told to us. And hopefully, hopefully I'll do that today in this sermon called Freedom. Father, we come before you today. God, I thank you for the ability to communicate such a mystery of your word, a fundamental just truth of your word, that this, the spirit of life of Jesus Christ has come to set us free. God, we thank you for the freedom that is stirring in this room. In Jesus' name I pray, let the church say, amen. There's a movement going on in Congo, in the Congos, where um, there are these men who, they live in great poverty. They're extremely poor. However, they buy clothes as if they're a millionaire. Uh, They live in great poverty, but they'll choose to spend all of their money on designer suits and fashion rather than food for their family. There's a a saying, it's Congo dandies. Not Congo daddies, Congo dandies. I have a few pictures of the Congo dandies. These guys live in extreme poverty, but they dress like a million bucks. Their families are starving. Their kids don't have nice clothes, but they do. They're still in extreme poverty, but they're dressed like millionaires. They, they know what they should spend their money on. Like, they know what they should spend their money on, but instead they spend it on what they want. This is a classic example of a flesh feast. They are just consuming the fleshly desires at the expense of their family, of their children, of their spouse, of their community, but they look like a million bucks. You know, it's... It's important that you and I understand that flesh feasts don't just happen in the Congo. Flesh feasts happen in America every day. Flesh feasts happen in Round Rock. Who would have thought it? Austin, yes, but Round Rock. Every day. My question is, do flesh feasts happen in your home every day? Because flesh... It's one of your number one enemies. And I know it's really easy and convenient to blame all temptation on Satan. Isn't it, right? The devil made me do it. The devil made me uh, take that drink. The devil made me uh, smell that white powder. The devil made me 
eat that extra food. The devil made me cheat on my taxes. Are you, are you with me? It's easy to blame the devil when our own flesh leads us astray. And, and Satan, certainly Satan is a key player. He's just not the only player on your enemy list. I, I don't advise at all that you ignore Satan and pretend he's not there, but let's just not give him credit for everything. Because I'm afraid some of us need to stop trying to pray and cast out a devil, and we just need to die to our flesh. What is flesh? I'm glad that you asked. Flesh, the Greek word for flesh in the New Testament is sarx, S-A-R-X, if you care to memorize that piece of knowledge. But it's a term that can often in Scripture refer to the physical body. Um, it refers to tissue, like fleshly tissue. If you think of a carcass, any, I don't know, deer hunters in the room, you, you kill a deer, you hang up, hang up a deer, then you skin a deer, what do you see? You see flesh, right? It can refer to the flesh part of anything living. So when the Bible talks about flesh, it could just be talking about your arm. Um, it could, could be talking about all of humankind. So everyone, every human that is living. The Bible, when it says flesh, can also be talking about all living things to include animals. So you have to, in the context of Scripture, kind of understand what the writer is intending, right? I, I doubt that the Apostle Paul is saying he's a slave to his pinky, right? That, that definition of flesh. He's probably not talking about the pinky. He's talking about another definition of flesh. And that is this predisposition to sin. You see, we are born into sin. The Bible makes it very clear that humanity didn't start out this way. In the book of Genesis, God created Adam and Eve. And what did he say? He said, it is good. Originally, it was good. The flesh was good. It was never intended to be on your enemy's list. It was good, but Adam and Eve sinned and their DNA was corrupted and sin entered into the world and it is transferred down from parent to child, parent to child, parent to child, generation after generation after generation. When you were born, you were hardwired for hell. You ever thought about that? I know you were the cutest baby. You've got pictures to prove it. But you were hardwired for hell. Each and every one of us are on our way to hell. Some people say, how can God send anyone to hell? He doesn't. We're already on our way to hell. He rescues us and gives us an escape from the route that we were already born into. You were born into sin. You were born into corruption. Talk about conspiracy theories. Every human on planet earth, when they are born, they are in desperate need of a savior. The fact of the sin nature is, is taught in many places in scripture. By the way, David, uh, not Samuel, David said in Psalm 51, 5, just a little hoot, hoorah. Great, great offering, Chad. That was really good. David said in Psalm 51, 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. He's not talking about she was shacking up with somebody, or she was in the prostitution ring, or she did anything wrong. David was saying that he was born in iniquity because of the fallen world. 
Like there's biblical basis all throughout Scripture that we are born into sin. We don't learn to sin, we're born into it. That is our now natural state. Um, however, by contrast, though, philosophers, Greek philo philosophers specifically like Plato, uh, taught a dualism of humanity. And they taught that the body was separate from the spirit and that the body was evil and the spirit was good. The spirit was good. That's a lot of the teaching of Gnostics these days. Not to be confused with agnostic, someone who doesn't believe in a higher power, but Gnostics, that they believe that there is a, a higher power, they're just not following Jesus Christ. One of the fundamental belief systems of Gnostics is that they believe there's a duality of mankind. My heart is good, my body's not. Right? My intentions are good, but I don't do the right thing. And, and we even see in our text that the Apostle Paul is saying there is this very real tension of the inner man versus the outward man. But the reality is the Bible says that from the very beginning in the garden, we were good. Then we got tainted. And now we don't start out good. Right? We don't start out good. We start out tainted, filled with sin. There's not a dualism going on to where, and I hear this all the time, yeah, but the Lord knows my heart. I know, and if you've used that excuse like I have, don't raise your hand, I don't want to call you out. But, but we almost, we get into the, the Greek philosophy framework of justifying our actions because the Lord knows the inner us, the inner us. But the real scripture says that we were good in the garden, then we're now walking in sin. But when we get saved, we become a new creation. We are one in Christ. Like, I need to be in alignment in all areas of my life, the physical, the mental, the financial, the spiritual, in, in all areas of my life. And I can't justify one because the Lord knows my heart. The favorite example of that is just giving and giving our tithe. Well, I don't give my 10%, but the Lord knows my heart. He sure does. He actually said that you can tell where your heart is too, by where your treasure is. You don't get to separate the heart and the treasure. They go together. But let me move on before I offend you on that. I'm, that's not even in my notes. I just, I think that we can see this play out in our, our world all the time. We say something rude to someone and we minimize that and say, well, that's not what I meant. My heart is this. Well, why don't we have that awakening before we say the something that's rude? Are you, do you know what I mean? I'm all, let's make a mistake, Chris. Make a mistake, that's fine. But let's learn from the mistake. Let's not continue to justify our bad decisions and our bad behavior because somewhere hidden in the complexities of life, God knows the real you. Let that outward man start to reflect who God says you really are. So contrary to Greek thought, the Bible says that humanity's nature, both physical and spiritual, started out good. It was good, but adversely affected by sin. 
I, I hope you're understanding that this is a, a lot of foundational theology, okay? So I'm, I'm going a little bit slow. Some of, you are pro, some of you are like, okay, I got it already. Let's move on. Some of you are like, this isn't making sense. So I'm just going to linger on this for just a few more seconds and talk about the flesh, okay? How does the flesh manifest itself in human beings? What is the flesh? When I say that the flesh is evil, what does that look like? In humanity. We don't have to guess. I don't have to give you my opinion. The Bible actually tells us in Galatians chapter 5, verse 19 through 21. It says, now the works of the flesh are evident. Everybody say evident. Evident. That means shining. The real translation is shining, apparent, obvious. Trey's translation is, you would be crazy to not see this. All right. You'd be crazy to not know that these are the works of the flesh, all right? Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. These are the flesh patterns of humanity that God says it's not compatible with kingdom living. I was looking for an example of flesh outworking in the world that we live in, and I didn't have to look, look far for this. Consider a few sad facts today from a recent survey uh, on the effect of pornography in America. According to the survey, every second, that, every second in the United States of America, not every day, not every hour, not every month, every second in America, $3,075 is being spent on pornography. 28,258 internet users are viewing pornography. 28,258 every second. Do you know how much junk is being viewed during the hour and 15 minutes you're in service? I mean, if nothing else, that's, that's a reason to come and do some spiritual warfare this morning. Right? For, for strongholds to break out in our community. Every second... 372 internet users are typing adult search terms into search engines. Every second. Every 39 minutes, a new pornographic video is being created in the United States. If these numbers seem outrageous to you, like, like they do to me, uh, consider this. These stats weren't taken from 2020 during the pandemic, when everyone's at home in front of their computer. These stats are taken from 2006. Imagine what 15 years later those stats will look like. In 2021, where 25% of Christians believe that pornography is morally acceptable. In 2021, one out of every four Christians believe that pornography is morally acceptable. I, I want to shake my pastor friends and be like, where are you? 
What are we teaching our people? One out of, one out of four. Hosanna, Pedro, Jordan, Ryan, which is it? Come on. <laughs> Just kidding. Not in this church. Not on my watch. I mean, you may believe that, but it's not because you haven't heard me talk about what righteousness looks like and holiness looks like and surrendering your life to God looks like. And by the, by the way, hopefully you understand how dangerous and destructive pornography actually is. This isn't meant to be a sermon on pornography, but since I'm there and 28,000 people are searching for answers right now, every second, let me just give a few. When you watch pornography, these flesh patterns run deep. It's not just a behavior issue, it's a brain issue. Every time you look at something that arouses you, you get a dump of dopamine. And by the way, the longer you watch it, it takes more of that, more intensity of that, the next time to get the same amount of dopamine to dump into your system. Did you know that? This is why on the first time you see it, you're like, oh my God. On the second one, you're like, oh my God. On the second one, you're like, oh my God. And on the third one or fourth one or fifth one, your life is so consumed with this garbage that you have physically rewired your brain. Physically. I'm not suggesting this as theory. I'm not suggesting this as an argument of what the Spirit of the Lord is saying. I'm, I'm telling you what scientists are saying. Dr. Lawrence Tucker, a psychiatrist with the American Board of Addiction Medicine, shows how brain scans of a porn addict and a cocaine addict reveal significant areas of deactivation when compared to that of a normal brain. That's right, a porn addict brain, when scanned, biologically looks just like a cocaine addict's brain. And the brains are being shut off because of this addiction. As America's attitudes to pornography change, the brains of our nation are being shut down. This is not just a fun pastime. This is destructive. I won't even get into the stats of how it impacts marriage. Even if you're single, how it impacts your sexuality. I won't even get into what scripture says about faithfulness to the marriage bed before you're married includes certain things with a computer screen. I'm not even touching that today. I'm just talking science. Is it all right if I just talk some science that's supported by Bible today? It's creating damage to you physically. We have medical proof that what the Bible has said all along is true. That living in the flesh brings death. It brings death spiritually. It brings death physically. It is literally killing our minds. Now this brings us back to what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 7. All right, I have a few minutes. Are you with me? He says that, we are living by two principles, or we operate under two laws in the life of a believer. Okay, we get to choose which one we operate under, but you can't live under both laws simultaneously. You have to pick one. You have access to both, but you get to pick one. 
And this is the law of sin and death. That's the first one. The second one is the law of the spirit of life in Christ. These are the two laws that we get to operate with the freedom today to operate in through Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 2 says, For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. The law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. He is dealing then with the presence of two natures in the child of God. Now listen, this is where we can get confused, so listen close. Salvation does not mean that God changes the old nature, that he cleanses it and somehow cleans it up and puts on a suit and tie on the old nature. You have the capacity today to go back to the old nature, and it is just as filthy and just as ugly and just as unkept as it was the day that you surrendered it to Jesus. Are you with me? The believer's old nature is just as wicked. Salvation doesn't mean that he cleans the old you up. Salvation means that God gives the believer a new nature and he crucifies the old one. The Christian still has the ability to sin, but he now has an appetite for holiness. The capacity for sin is still there, just not the desire. To all the sinners in the room, I want to make sure that you understand that this is, this is not a sermon on behavior modification. This is not a sermon to get you to put down those pills, to put down that bottle, to stop that lying. This is a sermon on relationship activation. For you to get to know your creator as he wants to take you back to the garden. He wants to take you back to that place where it was good. The way he intended you to be. The freedom he wanted you to walk in. Galatians 5.16 says, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. I, keep this up here for a moment, because I need you to see this, okay? This is really, really, really great news for all of us who are lost in sin today. Because it doesn't say, Cancel the desires of the flesh so that you can walk in the Spirit. <laughs> I don't know if you hear me today. It's not saying you got to stop anything. You have to live in the Spirit of God. And when you do that, the desires of the flesh fade away. Some of you have been trying to run for righteousness all of your life, will you just stop it today? Stop the behavior modification and lean into Jesus. Your biggest enemy, one of, is flesh. But listen, 
I, I can't just send you out with the enemy. I got to give you an ally. Is that all right? And it won't be as long as the enemy. It's short and sweet and to the point. But how many know for every enemy, the Lord has already sent an ally to counteract that enemy? Ally number four is the church. Big C church and little C church. Do you know the difference? Big C church, if you've said yes to Jesus, you are part of the big C church. Little C church, if you're sitting in the chairs today or you're watching online or maybe you're watching this later in the week because you're working, but you, you identify with a body of believers in a congregation, you are part of the little C church. Now, some, some clown out there will try to minimize little C church and only emphasize big C church. But the reality is the Bible talks about both big C church and little C church. They're both important. They're both your ally. They're both in your corner. They will both help you. Hebrews 10, 24 through 25 says, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Here's little C church, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. The church is important. I believe in the local church, man. And it's not because I work here full time. It's not because I, my whole family's here. I believe in the mission of the local church because I have seen lives changed. I believe in the exchange church because I have seen people wrapped up in, in sexual addiction be set free. I have seen people, I'm currently working with people and other team members are working with people that are wrapped up in alcoholism. And, and God is breaking that addiction over their life. We've seen alcoholism destroyed before in the past. We're seeing it even now among people in the church that you're going to church with. I believe in the local church. I believe this is a place where purpose is awakened and developed and people who are coming in dry and hungry and thirsty, that they can find hope here. I, I, I believe that if it was not for the local church, the local churches that God has sent me to in my life, not just the exchange church. Okay, let's take that off the table. That's an amazing church. Let me talk to you for just a second about another church in College Station. Introduced me to ministry. Had my pastor, Pastor Danny Green, not given me opportunity at Little C Church, I wouldn't be here with you today and you wouldn't know any of the people sitting in this room unless you're married, of course. And But even then it gets tricky because Michaela and Lawrence met here and they're married and it's all because of the Little C Church that they now have a family. Are you, do you know what I mean? Little C is so, so important. And, and what about, let's not forget Westover Hills, Assembly of God in San Antonio with Pastor Jim Ryan. I was in the military and Carrie and I were there struggling so hard in our marriage. And this man, the, one of the best pastors I've ever met, called us into his office. We needed him to sort this thing out because we were headed for divorce. And thank God he didn't try to just say, I'm praying for you and send us on our way. He said, y'all need counseling. Translation, what you're going through is way more than I'm qualified for. But thank God for the humility of a man who didn't have to have all the answers. Our marriage was rescued because of the Little C Church. 
Anglesey Church growing up in East Austin. A little church called, I won't say it, that's still there. Gave me a foundation for loving the house of the Lord. Went to church every Sunday morning, every Sunday night. My parents lived maybe an hour away. We lived over toward in Cedar Park, actually. There were no like quick transitions to get to East Austin back in, in those days, you hear me? Like it took some time to get to church. And then at, at one point we moved out in the country and we we're still going to that church. And every Sunday morning that the doors of that church were open, we were there. Saturday nights was only singing, no preaching. That was my favorite time, uh, favorite service, because I didn't have to listen to the preacher. And we were there every Saturday night. And then after church, we'd go to Dan's hamburgers and play and get in trouble and play the little football thing where you hit it across the table. And, and every, every Wednesday night, we were there. I thank God for the local church as disorganized or crazy or whatever that, that church was in that season of my life. The Lord established a deep love for the house of the Lord even then. Don't tell me little C church isn't important. Little C church is the reason you have a church to call home. And by the way, we're talking about addiction so much today. Let me just throw this on the table for you to chew on. Do you know the opposite of addiction is not sobriety? The opposite of addiction is not freedom. The opposite of addiction is connection. That doesn't make your head spin. I don't know what will. Because addiction will take you into places of isolation and withdrawal and refusal to connect. But when you connect deeply with people, it fulfills something inside of you that allows you to release the addictions that have had hold on you for your entire life. There was a study done late 70s, early 80s. It was called Rat Park. They put rats in individual cages with two water bottles. One was pure water, one was heroin laced. The rats, after some time, got addicted massively to heroin. Of course, right? Two options, water, I'm alone in the cage, nothing to do. Hey, this water's fun. Every single rat got addicted to heroin. Then they put those same rats in what they called rat park. And they had things for the rats to do and friends for the rats to talk to and, and you know, things for them to run over and to build and to be creative and to connect. And every single one of the rats stopped the heroin because connection met the need. If you're struggling today with addiction, your solution is Jesus through connection. It's not behavior modification. It's not trying to push that thing away, trying to keep it out of sight. That may be part of the process, but the real solution is connection. The reality is, I don't come to church to be with God. I hope you don't either. I hope that this measly one hour and 25 minutes is not your connection time with God. 
And I know it, COVID is, is weird. COVID stinks. And a lot of people are needing to watch from home. I get it. I get it. But this is not our time to connect with God. You should be doing that 24 hours a day, seven days a week. This is our time to connect with each other. Connection brings healing. Hey, Michael, can I, can you choose to volunteer for me real quick? Yeah, come here. I just want to do a little example. Run up here and just stand right here. LSU, I much prefer that over UT. How are you doing, man? Good to see you, brother. Okay, you're just going to stand right here, okay? I'm not going to hurt you. <laughs> when you came in today, you all got a rubber band. Everyone got a rubber band? That's awesome. Okay, I'm going to take, Michael, a handful of rubber bands, and I'm just going to throw them at you, okay? And then I'll make my point after. You can try to catch them if you think you can. All right, you ready? I'm gonna throw, can you see this? I'm just gonna throw a handful of rubber bands at you, all right, as hard as I can, all right, ready? Okay, great. So, I'm not sure why you flinched on that one exactly, but you didn't know what to expect. I, I can't really make my point with that though. I'm gonna do it one more time. Can I throw one more handful of rubber bands at you? No, I have another handful in here. Is that all right? Okay, great. All right. What? What's the matter? Okay. So I'm just going to take a handful of rubber bands and throw it as hard as I possibly can. Are you ready? Okay. No, I'm just kidding. I wouldn't do that to you because I promised I wasn't going to hurt you. But listen, man. Individually, rubber bands can be effective. But together, they're powerful. This is the power of the Little C Church. That when we're connected together, there are some chains that fall that wouldn't have fallen had you not had a brother alongside you in this race. You know what I mean? I want you to take this as a reminder of the power of Little C Church in your life. I love you, man. Let's give it up for Michael. All right, I'm, I'm done. I'm out of time. I just... I want to leave you with one last thought. If you're watching online from out of town or another state, I want to thank you for watching. And I've never done this before, but I believe so passionately in the power of the local church that I want to, I want to encourage you to not make this your church home. If you're only watching from out of line, out of line, out of town, out of state, and you love our worship and you, you love our teaching, that's awesome, but I'm just a teacher to you. I'm not a pastor. I can't pastor someone I can't see. So I'm gonna ask you to find a local church because I believe in the power of a little C church, local church. It's so important. It's important because you can sit there on the couch and watch church with your spouse, but the reality is our spouse is a lot more tolerant of our sin and our flesh patterns than our friends are people in the church who can look you in the eye and see when you're getting a little bit squirrely. You know what I mean? It's so important for you to have a local church. So if you're watching from out of town or out of state, 
I want you to email info at theexchangechurch.org. I will personally find you a church in your city, a Bible-believing church that I believe will be good, that you can connect in person. Because it's too late when the storm comes to figure out who's on your rowing team. Father, in Jesus' name, God, I understand that flesh is one of our greatest enemies. But through the power of the local church, you have given us community that is an antidote to flesh patterns, is an antidote to addiction, is an antidote to sin. God, I thank you that through the power of Jesus, through the blood of Jesus, that we are set free, healed, and delivered. But it is through the power of relationship that our hearts are made whole. God, I just thank you. God, I thank you from this moment forward, we will be intentional with our relationships. We will invest in others and allow others to invest in us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. Can you give the Lord a hand clap this morning? God bless you.